I think that there was a worker to manager conversation, which was like, well, well, well. So everyone seems to be working much more productively now. And we don't need all your stupid spreadsheets and your stupid this process and your stupid that process. Oh, sorry. What is it that you actually do here again? There has been a question of the function of management at all. Welcome back to Building Better Games, everybody. Today, we are going to do a deep dive on remote work. It's a controversial subject with passions flaming up on all sides of the debate. Even crazier is that the world keeps shifting under our feet right when we think things are about to stabilize. Today, we're gonna ask and hopefully answer a couple of questions. Why is remote work such a controversial topic today? Two, there seems to be an anger directed towards management or the quote unquote higher ups. Where is that coming from? Three, we're making a ton of assumptions about what the world will look like doing this in perpetuity. What are those assumptions? Our goal today is to build an understanding about the rise of remote work and help us all make better decisions as leaders on the journey toward building better games. Remote work, man, this one's been on the back burner for you and I, and it's just noticing the, as you called it, the macro view of like what's going on and how people are responding. When I see things like remote work, the place that I go to mentally is like off the cuff, less adversarial than I see people going to in general. Mm -hmm. Like there's this heavy implication of a moral or ethical quandary here around the subject. One of these major themes about that in the past I viewed as like an organizational choice, which is remote work, has now become this sort of like workers' rights issue. And you and I did a YouTube video a couple of years ago at the beginning of COVID where we speculated about what the future might look like. And I remember at that time, I was still very much like, oh, what a crazy and temporary thing that's happening. Like, I wonder what it'll be like when this is over after a year. And now I'm very much like, <laughs> okay, this is what the rest of my career looks like. Yeah. And so what does that mean? And like, and now just as those barely as those words escape my mouth, now I'm like, oh crap, are we actually all going back to the office? You know, 350,000 tech workers have been laid off right. in the last like several months. And, you know, <laughs> management's punching back for lack of a better term, right? Right. Like I, I'm, I'm being facetious. I don't actually view it that way. But for a while there, it looked like, you know, the workers were making all the demands. The employer was no longer the one who held all the cards. The employee yeah. held all the cards. We're in a remote world and you need talent more than we all need to work for you. And I think that really did happen for a decent chunk of the pandemic. In my mind, I remember thinking, what's the other shoe and when's it gonna drop? <laughs> like that pendulum is gonna keep going back and forth. And you talked about this, but you're very aware of trade-offs. I think you're the guy who can lay out five options and be like, I'm gonna list off all of the upsides and downsides of each option. So you, I think you were much more able to mentally go into this and be like, well, everyone is saying this is 100% unequivocally good, that we're all working remote now. That makes me inherently suspicious when they say it. What's interesting is if you dive into the specific conversation, people will admit, well, obviously there's trade-offs, right? There's downsides. But I think the overwhelming case was it's so 
obvious to anybody that it's positive and good so much more than it's negative that who would possibly believe something else? And I think that put us in a situation where in a society that trends towards more polarization, those that disagreed, we didn't look at them through a what is the complex reasons and logic behind why they might disagree with me? It was much more short-circuited to, this thing is obviously good. They don't like it. They must have some ulterior motive behind why they don't like it. And that push towards the ideas of maliciousness as one, maintenance of power or increasing of power as another, or ignorance as a third. So the assumption was that there was a deficiency or a moral failure on the part of the other side of the debate. And then you had this thing of, well, and look at who is asking for people to come back. It's the CEOs and the managers. But like, there is a real thing there. There's like a real argument that's being made, which is like, see, we're all happier now. We're all better off now. And all they can say is, can't wait till I can make you come back in the office. And then the management side has been like, very much under their breath, right? For the last 18 to 24 months, they've been sort of biding their time and they've been saying, well, you know, these entitled workers, you know, just don't want to take responsibility and like how much work are they actually doing? And then you see some companies putting in place like tracking software to like see like when you're actually working and stuff. But I guess what I'm saying is like, there's a clear pattern of both sides of that argument painting folks that disagree with them with an adversarial brush. And it's it's deficient, I think, for the managers, you know, because I don't want to just be knocking on the employees who perhaps were so excited by a remote work and then saw the manager as the adversary. It revealed something, I think, for some subset of managers, which is I don't trust my people to do good work. I don't trust them if I can't see them. Yeah. And that was absolutely baked into the old cake. You and I would both agree that's a bad frame to have. You push towards lowest common denominator rather than elevating your organization when you take that stance. I think that's both sides because I think that there was a worker to manager conversation, which was like, well, well, well. So everyone seems to be working much more productively now. And we don't need all your stupid spreadsheets and your stupid this process and your stupid that process. Oh, sorry. What is it that you actually do here again? Like, and then there has been a question of the function of management at all, like in any capacity now in this world going, we had a sneaking suspicion that we didn't actually need those people before. And now this just proves it. That's kind of the enterprise side. And our version of that in games is production. There is a connection there between how you view the function of production and how you view the function of management and how you view the function of leadership primarily versus whether you think it's more or less valuable now post-pandemic. Leaders are the people who inspire us and keep us aligned and give us critical information and protect us from interruption. If you view production as that, I think you probably have derived more value since the pandemic started. If you view the producer as sort of a taskmaster who makes you put all your hours into JIRA and sort of rides your butt about updating your sprint report and then makes the spreadsheet where everyone's data comes together into a gigantic data blob, that person I think is the one that's more likely to be viewed as questionable now. Now again, these are all generalizations, but I think both sides' criticisms are nested in some amount of truth. Yes, actually, completely agree. 
there's a nugget of truth. The interesting thing is in both cases, it was already true before, but the remote world put a magnifying glass on those two things. And I think it's what makes the simplified worldview where I create this as a moral or ethical question that has a simple answer is very useful because I don't have to deal with the complexity of everything that goes into the trade-offs of remote versus hybrid versus in-office work. It's just, well, I know remote work is the most moral choice. Therefore, any advocacy for anything else is wrong. Yeah. So this is kind of leading us into the first question, which is like, what is the source of the controversy around this? Like, why is this so controversial? I was joking about this with you earlier, but I was flabbergasted the other day on Twitter. I saw somebody write out a thread and the thread was basically like, hey, this is all evidence of the sort of like late capitalist emergence of a middle management class that is like basically supplanting the old school sort of like capital owners and like sort of petty bourgeoisie or they were like trying to take over and like remote work is like the nail in the coffin. Like the, it's finally the workers punching back and it's sort of presented as this grand battle of good and evil. And, and I was just like, how the heck did this like what seemingly benign organizational management conversation become this like, I think it is very much a sign of the times, but at the same time, it makes it hard to talk about this. Like, I was stunned to come to the realization that like on Twitter, as an example, I there was no point in 2020 or 2021 where I was like, where I felt like I could go on Twitter and be like, hey, there are actually some useful things about in-person work. Even like something that felt very low key from that perspective felt like it would be very threatening or expose me to public criticism or angst that was materially damaging to my career. And that's not even saying I think in-person work is better and we should all do that. It's just saying like, hey, there are some good things about this. It's like, because again, that moral attachment has made it so adversarial by nature. When I look at why is the, why is there a moral attachment? Why did that arise? Now, I mentioned earlier, we live in a world that is trending towards polarization. So that might push us in that. When everybody's communicating in small sound bites, Certainly does. Yeah. I mean, like if it's safe to say everything kind of ends up here these days, right? Right. So. Yeah. So then, yeah, no problem too small to not be a moral <laughs> yeah. hill to die on, basically. Yeah. And that idea of pushing people apart through these small sound bites that don't allow for any of the complexity, the nuance or the careful debate and conversation between different perspectives that could lead you to what's option C, you know, what's the win-win in all this? That's one piece of it. There's another thing, though, that I don't know if this underlies it. This is really emotional. And I think that that came before it became a moral question. Yes. was a very emotional question because I think it's very personal. And when the pandemic occurred and everybody that could was sent home, those that could work from home realized that there were a lot of gains that they got in their life from working from home, including some of them moving and saving a bunch of money or living near where they would ideally like to live, all kinds of things. And the idea that some manager somewhere is going to come into my life now, my new work and life, and say, hey, you have to come back to the office, meaning I have to move again, and I'm going to have to spend the time I used to spend commuting and paying money for meals 
man, I really don't want that to happen. As much as I, I actually do see massive value in in-person work and collaboration, by default, I don't mind at all waking up, rolling out of bed, doing my morning routine at home, then going into my office and turning on my computer. And I hate commutes. I don't like having to worry about going out for food. I don't want any of that struggle and that pain. And the idea that at the end of my workday, I just shut down those tabs, turn off my computer or whatever, and I'm home. It's really nice. I think it makes sense where if you threaten that, I feel attacked. You're attacking my life. It's interesting. I have a friend. He's taken really strongly to the work at home lifestyle Mm -hmm. and actually reacts very emotionally at the idea that he should or may need to at some point in the future go back into work. And I've dug into that with him and been like, hey, what's going on there? I was fascinated to hear that he was just like, I have been such a victim of poor leadership in my career that this transition has moved more of the agency about how I operate on a day-to-day basis into my personal space And so I have so much more control now in a way that I didn't. Like when when I was in the office and my manager was sort of proverbially and literally looking over my shoulder every day, like he accumulated most of the agency himself and more often than not abused it. And so it was interesting to hear him articulate that because that is certainly part of this controversy and part of this, the anger and resentment. And again, back to the ridiculous sort of middle management supplanting the petty bourgeoisie and this sort of grand conspiracy. If you ask me, I'm actually probably more sympathetic to the like, we should go back into the office folks than most are now. But like, if you ask me, Aaron, do you think most managers in America are A, bad at their jobs or B, good at their jobs? I'm like, it's not even like 55 you know, 45, it's like 80, 20, if I'm feeling generous today. And so it's like, how can I blame these folks? I think the thing that, again, I find concerning is that we need to be able to talk about this because if we can't talk about this, we're never going to be actually able to address the real issues. And there's this like extremism that comes into the equation where it's like, well, clearly managers are bad and we don't need those anymore. And I'm like, no, have you ever had a good manager? It feels really good. Now, I don't also understand that most people probably haven't had that. That's unacceptable to me, that eight out of 10 managers have never had any training or that most of my managers in my career have been poor. They weren't amazing at the craft of what I did, but as managers, they were subpar. And then when I became a manager and I realized I had to figure it all out for myself from scratch and there was no lexicon of information available, like same thing, right? I struggled through it. I made a ton of mistakes. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I really want to zero in on what's true. This to me feels like a learning experience. Yes. I want to double down on that because I think the vast majority of managers were not good at their job as managers, as leaders. They didn't understand what that meant. They didn't know how to do that. And this then became, through a learning lens, an amazing opportunity. An interesting thing for me is that in the remote world, I have not viewed the core role of a producer in games or a leader in technology as having changed. It's just a new environment. The thing that I believe they should be doing is still what they should be doing. And by the way, on the flip side of that, I think it is probably also true to what degree is debatable, but it is also true that 
the impotency of managers and leaders that were focused on other things, where the sort of taskmaster style manager or leader could sort of get away and fly under the radar with appearing useful, even though they weren't actually adding any value. And I think now it's harder to do that in today's world with remote work. If you are a leader that was extremely great at, at rallying people towards goals, extremely crisp prioritization, understanding how to connect the values and the culture of the organization and break that down into meaningful work and meaningful objectives, how to get teams aligned and collaborating. I feel like that's still just as valuable today. Those things you just described, that's always been it. When I show up in a team, what am I doing? My job was always to look at the team and go, how are they operating today? What are the challenges that they have? What are the opportunities that I see? What are they trying to do? And if you're a product-oriented leader, you're doing that on the product and the vision and like the audience and the resonance and the more people side, you're thinking about culture and the processes. But all of that's the same fundamental approach. This idea that leaders are force multipliers, not additive in terms of value. I don't produce anything valuable directly. What I do is I make every other person on a team better if I'm doing my job well. The negative side is if I did think my job was to make sure that everybody was intimidated by me and making sure that they were all working eight hours a day and had butts in seats and were submitting their reports on time and all that stuff, just like a good leader producer can be a force multiplier, a bad leader or producer can be a force divider effectively and can diminish the effect of every person on their team. And I think you're spot on. I think the pandemic and a largely remote world for a lot of these companies, especially in game, it just exposes that, oh, there actually wasn't a lot of value coming from there. You know, when I look at that, I'm like, that's good. That's good. Now, like one thing, and this is my biggest concern, I think it's directed at people in general who are taking a one-dimensional view is that there's a real possibility of an extremely rude awakening in the future for a lot of people. Like there's a lack of ability to contextualize how good we have it. I read another post on Twitter a couple weeks back where somebody was just, I can't even remember what it was, but they were a tech worker somewhere in enterprise and they were basically like, I woke up this morning, I did this, I got myself a coffee, I, you know, met with this person on Zoom. And, you know, and I just looked out the window and I just realized, like, what a great position. I, and I make, like, 280K a year. And, like, I just, like, had a moment where I was like, whoa, I was just filled with gratitude. I'm like, wow, what a, what a deal. You know, like, look at what I have. And, again, what I'm not trying to say right now is to anyone who's working from home, you know, making a good salary, like to wag the finger at you and say like, you should be happy with what you've got. That's not where I'm going. Here's what I'm trying to say. There are a lot of other things that impact the reality that we exist in when it comes to work that are not moral or ethical. And we all need to understand that, right? Like if the tech sector collapses tomorrow or the games industry collapses tomorrow and layoffs start to happen in mass, like it has happened before, right? The supply demand equation changes overnight. And if you are not in any way, shape or form equipped to go back into the office, you may be at a strategic disadvantage now compared to somebody who is willing to go back into the office. And I'm not saying that to you because I'm saying that that's good or that you should feel okay with that or that you should be happy about that. I'm simply saying like, 
keep things in context. Like understand that if there's a meat packer out there somewhere or a truck driver out there somewhere who has been chomping at the bit all through 2020 and 2021 to get back out in their truck or get back in their meatpacking factory so that they can go back to work as a blue collar worker and make money and feed their families. They don't get to talk about soft serve ice cream machines being decommissioned in HQ because the company had to cut back or whether, you know, we should install a new foosball tape. Like they don't have that. So like one of the things I really want to point out as white collar workers and advanced technology, like whether we're in games or enterprise, that's where we're working. We have the luxury of getting to have some of these higher order debates about the morality and ethical quandaries associated with remote work. And we have to be very careful that our exploration of these topics and trying to find out what's optimal and what the trade-offs are does not lead us to a place of entitlement. I often feel like that is exactly where we go with this. And I'm saying, hey, anything that you're entitled to, you feel entitled to, is going to be extremely painful if it ever gets taken away. Yeah. And there are a lot of reasons it could be taken away. And least of all being it was right or it was wrong, but I think it's really, really important. I've been trying to kind of follow the macro tunes here and be like, are we going to be back in the office in 18 months? Because I'm watching the supply and demand equation change. Like, again, I don't want to, I, I, I don't care what you think of Elon or Twitter or any of this stuff. Like it's another one of these hot topics out there. I actually am personally not engaged in that conversation, but it's interesting that he's I think laid off or fired over 80%. They've either left or, or been laid off, yeah. We've had an 80% reduction in the Twitter workforce, basically. And he's now making everybody come back into the office with like only case-by-case -case exceptions. And now that there are other companies looking at this in tech and going, whoa, he managed to keep this gigantic platform up with only 20% of his workforce, at least so far. And he managed to get everyone to come back into work. And the people are getting laid off in mass. So now we have more, the supply demand equation is now shifting a little bit back in our favor. There's a lot of talent looking for new jobs and only a certain amount of positions in theory. Now, again, I'm not saying any of this is right or wrong or good or bad. It's just happening. And you know what? And we're going to probably screw it up just the way we always screw things up as we learn and try. But I do want people out there to understand like how this can impact you and to sort of be aware that we have a lot to be thankful for. I'm not saying we should kowtow to management and be like, oh, thank you, sir. Can I have another? That's not what I'm saying. But like we're in a very privileged position being able to work in games and technology as white collar workers. I think as a leader, also, you have an obligation to your organization to consider a mechanical perspective, what remote work looks like and what on-site work looks like. You shouldn't just assume that, well, clearly the moral side is remote work. And so that's what we do now forever. Like that's, that would be a foolish position to take. Like, I think if there's one takeaway we should all have from the last couple of years is no one knows what the hell is going to happen. And none of us are in control right now. We're all just doing our best. So, yeah, you know, we had a question, which is, there's a lot of anger directed towards management and higher ups. Where's that coming from? I think we've touched on some of it. One of that you talked about the sense of an entitlement that I think is present for some people that remote work has now become something that I will always do. And not only is it something I will always do, but I believe it is a right that I should have. And I find that stance, like you said, it's a vulnerable stance. That's the way the system works now. 
you can actually ask for whatever you want as long as you create an, a value that is commensurate with that. Like I have friends who got half a million dollar salaries and were able to move into remote work as director level leaders before any of this started because they were so good at their jobs. Their bosses were like, I can't afford to lose you. Like I will almost under any circumstances keep you because you're that good at your job. That is not an entitlement thing at all. That's just commanding what you're worth. Within the current supply and demand system. Yeah. And if we're all doing that, I think that's a very healthy thing to do. Where I take issue is when somebody transitions into like, well, I deserve this. Like, I should have this. I think that's where the it's a right and it's a right we should all have. Yeah. And for me, well, obviously, there's many people who don't have that right. Yeah. In fact, the majority, the vast majority. Yeah, and how much time do we spend thinking about them? Really, we're mostly thinking about other people who are like us, that's the truth. Yes, and I think that, again, it makes you vulnerable. It makes you vulnerable to the fact that, that the industry may change. That may just be that, look, if you're really committed to making a choice, not a right, you're really committed to the choice of, no, I wanna work remote. Okay, that is a trade-off now that you have to take into account when you're looking for employment because maybe a lot of the companies you wanna work at don't do that anymore. So you have to go to a different company and hopefully you find something great. But I think that's a better way to frame it is, hey, there's a trade-off here. I think the thing that happened, and, and this is to come back to where's that anger and even why is it controversial, coming back to that emotional load that I feel like is nested inside of this. So many people realized that from what they were perceiving about their own lives, the value of working remote was immense. It was huge. It was more than they expected, more than they thought. And when that happens, I'm willing to sacrifice a lot for that. Yep. This is worth a lot to me, so there's a lot I'm willing to give up for it. That might be salary, that might be all these different things, you know, depending on your circumstances and whatever else, but you're stuck inside the same constraints everybody else is in, and you're just trying to play with these trade-offs, and someone else is perfectly willing to go into the office might have an easier time getting certain jobs than you will. Great. You've both acknowledged where you stand. One thing I want to call out that you have often said, which I love in this context, which is bad management hurts people. When we're leaders and we make mistakes, they hurt people. Yes. And I think that this is part of this conversation. And it is what allows me to know in my bones that the average manager and the average leader is out there trying to do their God's honest best when they come into work every day. They're not trying to hurt you. They're not trying to like make your life miserable. They're not trying to like suck the lifeblood in the form of Jira tickets out of your decrepit bones. They're just people trying to do jobs that they can be both good at on some days and bad at on other days. The difference between the managers and the workers, if you will, in this situation is that when managers screw up, it hurts people. Other people bear the consequences of a leader's mistakes. Exactly. And, and this is something we tell producers, we tell managers, we tell leaders when we're training them is like, this is part of the burden you need to carry. It's part of the reality you live in. And I think that this is not something that is often acknowledged. And I think that this is baked into this cake. When I go back to what I said, where I'm like, 80% of managers are probably bad at their jobs or not great. That means that a lot of people are getting hurt a lot of the time. Like just an example off the top of my head is like, how many times have you felt like you were clear on your expectations with your manager and you absolutely crushed it and you were promised a promotion and then at the last minute due to some political thing or whatever, you it was just zoink gone. Like that hurts really, really, really bad. 
That's a pretty benign example. There are many that are way worse than that. And I'm sure everyone in the audience here can relate to having this happen to them, regardless of their performance at some point in their career. I don't blame people for feeling resentment toward the idea of management at all. One iota. In corporate America today, bad management is a cancer. And I'm disappointed by it. And I think we all need to do better. And I think that people need to stop viewing leadership and management roles purely as a way to bump their salary and their title prestige up a couple notches and also view it as a opportunity to take even more personal responsibility for yourself, your work, and the people around you. Yeah. I want to go a step further in that idea of anger towards management and especially higher ups related to what you're saying. In the absence of the training, we have good intentions, but bad results. I do not believe 80% of managers are actually out there just trying to screw everybody that works for them. I think most of them are actually trying to do a good job and they're following poor role models or they just weren't trained. They are ignorant. When it comes to how higher ups, especially C-level execs, VPs, presidents are relating to the pandemic and to that, like maybe we need to bring everybody back to the office. One of the challenges is the communication around the why. When I see this stuff, it often gets reduced down to some version of, hey, this is just who we're going to be. This is what we're going to do. It's hard to articulate a value to that. That is something that your employee can understand as worth the cost that they are paying as an individual. Remember earlier, I just talked about the high value that the employee got from going remote. I wasn't in traffic. I wasn't paying for gas. I was paying less for food. I was healthier. Now you want me to go back into the office. And the best you can do is kind of say, I don't know, I feel like inner team communication isn't great, or I would like us to collaborate better. And it's not even that any of those things wouldn't be helped by going back into the office. From that individual's perspective, I look at that and I go, is that worth this cost to my life? Now, the CEO is sitting there and they're going, yeah, but I'm losing a lot of money. And if this business goes under, I can't employ anybody. Now, in some cases, it's just then I can't please shareholders, right? And, you know, revenues down or whatever. But all those things are relevant to their job. And so they're looking at it and they're going, well, shoot, how do I get back what I lost? Because something was lost. And one way to do that is to, well, let's go back to the way it was. Like, it makes sense to me. And by the way, it might work. But now it's, it's like you said, I've gotten used to a different standard. And so when you suggest that every person at an individual level has this like, I'm going to go find someone else who will do remote. And interestingly, when this first happened, you could do that. But as time has gone on, that may become harder. This goes into this whole idea of like what assumptions we're making. That may never change. If we really believe that remote work for most people is eminently desirable, then what that implies to me is that the most talented people who command the most respect and the highest value in their careers are going to be the ones most likely to ask for that or demand that. So like what that means now is that for leaders that are unwilling to compromise on that, they've now shut themselves off from access to the best talent. So like, and that's just one assumption I feel like 
managers and CEOs are making right now that they don't realize they're making. And I think that there's a lot of other assumptions, which is like that any of us will be able to get a job in (laughs) a year. You know, I, I hope things get better, but things are looking pretty rough out there right now for a lot of people. And I have a lot of empathy. You know, I think that there's certainly when shakeups like this happen, lots of changes occur. I think we settled in actually in the last six to 12 months around like what the new world order looked like post COVID. And it feels like things are about to get shaken up. Again, there are a million other ways that our work lives could change as a result of this uh, supply demand imbalance. Like I, I really think one of the things that's interesting about the Twitter situation right now, regardless of your moral or political stance on that, is what happens over the next 18 to 24 months there. Because if it continues to work really well from a operational perspective, it potentially begs questions around, hey, how many of these people do we actually need? Like, what are the trade-offs here? And, And again, whether you think that that's good or bad is not what I'm getting at. A takeaway from that could be like, wow, most of these FANG type companies are actually extremely bloated from an operational perspective. And if that could lead to a bunch of changes, and I don't just mean layoffs, I mean like it could change the way we work and the way we think about productivity and culture and all these other things, right? I would just caution people about writing too hard on any existing assumption you have around this. I feel like I've just spent the last 18 months trying to be like, okay, now this is the way it's gonna be. Okay, now this is the way it's gonna be. Okay, and now I have no clue. Like that's where I'm at, right? I have no clue. The assumption has been for some amount of time, it seems like remote is here to stay. Yeah. That's being challenged right now. That was an assumption that felt stable. That's definitely being challenged right now. I think another assumption, and I wanted to kind of talk about this, I disagreed with this as a valid conclusion very early on, which is it seems like we get more stuff done. And that meant that our company is more productive and better at producing value now that we're all remote. And I think that came from a lot of the ways we were measuring productivity and seeing that people are getting more work done. They're doing more things. They're creating more stuff. That must be good. Therefore, remote work must be good. Look at all this early data. And we've talked extensively now about value versus stuff and how those two things are different. And actually, one of the things you're trying to do as a leader and a manager is reduce the amount of work that's done and maximize the value produced. And it's worth noting that when we started having this conversation around mid to late 2020, we both speculated something feels off here. Yes. Like, and now I think we've both confirmed our suspicion. Yes. Sure. There's a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of work getting done. It may not be as value producing as we expected. And there's a bunch of different reasons why that might be true. My speculation is that as we've talked about, there was residual alignment right when the pandemic happened. People kept working because they knew what to work on. Over time, alignment degrades around the vision and the strategy and what's important and all these things. And when that is lost, we're actually doing a lot of work, but it's not value producing. Like to me, one of the biggest tells was like, as a gamer, when I objectively look at the last two years of major releases, release quality, patch cadence, patch quality, reviews, delays, like all these things, I just don't see how I could argue that things are not objectively worse than they were two years ago. And to me, 
How can it be true that everything's better? We're getting so much more work done. All the stuff people were saying in 2020 and then have those be the results. Something's disconnected there. An assumption I think we made is that our way of understanding if we were producing value or, or being successful, we thought we had good ways to measure and understand that. I think some people still think that. I not thought that's true hardly ever in my career. I think it's unbelievably difficult to measure value delivered. And we always try. And every time you create a KPI or a metric, you you think that's it. But there's this, if we thought we were getting better because these numbers were going up, maybe we had the wrong numbers mm -hmm. and it gave us a false positive. And over time, it doesn't seem like we're getting the same great outcomes. Again, multivariable equation, tons of different stuff that could be part of it. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. We want to leave you with some key takeaways from this podcast. Number one, there are meaningful trade-offs in a remote world. And right now we're all trying to figure this out. We will make mistakes along the way. Number two, don't assume that someone who thinks differently from you around remote work is an adversary. This one is super key. I think we stifle our ability to learn and grow and understand how to make good decisions as leaders when we turn this into purely a moral issue. And on that note, number three, as leaders, it's important for us to be guided by morals and values as we work, of course, but we should avoid the one-dimensional view of remote work as purely moral and ethical. Thanks everybody for joining us for our the remote work discussion here. Next time, we're gonna go into the practical tools you can use to be a better leader in a remote, hybrid, or in-person world. Don't miss it. If this episode helped you today, please take a moment on your respective platform right now and go give us a review. Your reviews have a huge impact on our ability to keep delivering this content to you and also mean the world to us. Thank you so much.